Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball Podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by author and 10-year cancer survivor, Edward Miskey. Edward is going to be telling his story, talking about his book, and talking about things that people don't talk about cancer, you know, life before, during, and after. And he's going to, you know, tell us his story and tell us all the things that People need to know and give some advice for any other cancer survivors out there that might be struggling. So, Edward, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am based out of New York City. I've been here for almost 18 years. Um, I started out as a singer-songwriter, transitioned into musical theater, and kind of was dabbling in writing all along the way. Um, and then once the cancer situation kind of took over I, <laughs> uh, and derailed everything, um, I kind of became more uh, interested in the writing component. And that's kind of where this book came from and where I sit today. So that's me in a nutshell. I do a bunch of different stuff. Like I'm, I'm still a songwriter. I still have stuff up on Spotify and iTunes and everything else. And, you know, I write scripts for TV and film that I'm going to be producing this year. I'm turning my book into a TV show actually. And um, yeah, I just basically work in the general digital creator space entertainment. Okay. Well, tell us, uh, you're, you're a 10 year cancer survivor. Tell us, what kind of cancer you had, you know, just, just kind of break it down for us and, and uh, the, the run up to it. And, you know, t- tell us about that. Sure. So I had what is called the rare and large B cell Burkitt's like non Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is very aggressive and very rare. It typically only manifests itself in like children in Africa, which I am not in Africa and I'm not a child. (laughs) So it was very strange as to why I had this in the first place. There was no history, family history or medical history of anything like this ever happening um, within my family or for, for any reason whatsoever. So everyone was pretty stumped from the jump. Um, I found a little lump under my arm, you know, very textbook, you know, like found a lump under my arm. I went to a doctor, misdiagnosed. I was diagnosed with cat scratch fever, which isn't real. <laughs> like, like, I don't know if anyone's ever really heard of that. It is a real thing, but it's nothing that I would have had and, uh, took a bunch of antibiotics, didn't work. And a couple months later I was, you know, like knee deep in chemo. So that was uh that was kind of the way that that originated um the mental gymnastics that I had to go through to kind of transition out of my previous life into a full-time professional patient life uh was wild and then repeated itself after I was told I was cancer free and then I had to do more gymnastics up in the brain uh to kind of figure out what my life was going to be like after the fact that's what I was going to ask you about. What what was your life like before you uh, were diagnosed and and after? 
So before I was diagnosed, I was pretty much working full time as an actor. I was doing musical theater. I was traveling all over the country, um, you know, singing and dancing all over and doing all the things, you know, like kind of building up some momentum for like, you know, why I moved to the city and what kind of career I wanted to have. And, you know, I was 24 and I just felt like I had everything in front of me and things were starting to go my way. And it, I just like was completely on cloud nine and, you know, all that to say, I was also kind of a, an asshole and, and uh, you know, a know-it-all. And I don't know if that was like being t- in my 20s or if that's just who I was because I had some momentum going. <laughs> but, um, you know, I always say that I don't think me now would want to hang out with me then. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was close to my family, I guess, and I had pretty good friends. But that was that was a big thing that changed once cancer hit. Well, what what was the biggest change you saw in your life during and after your cancer treatments? Self-identity, honestly. Um, you know, I mean, I had friends fall off, you know, people that I thought would be there for me were not. And, you know, family, we all got closer, you know, we band, we banded together and got a lot closer during that period of time. But, you know, who I was or who I thought I was kind of just was like ripped away and, and, you know what what other way what other uh how else is that going to happen you know when you're in a situation like that you you have to give up everything and there there was a, a moment that i i talk about in my book where i'm sitting at a table in the atrium of the hospital and the doctor comes and sits down next to me to tell me that things aren't really going well and prior to that i had gotten a phone call from um a theater i've always wanted to work at and they offered me their entire summer stock season and i had to tell them that i couldn't do it and i mentioned that to my doctor and she was just like you're going to have to put all of that behind you now and it just hurt so bad to like really have someone articulate to me that i had to let go of everything that was prior to that point um, it was really weird. I mean, obviously, like I cried. <laughs> it wasn't big, ugly cry in a hospital lobby, you know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, just who you are completely goes away. And this is a catastrophic situation. So of course, I'm speaking specifically to myself. And there are obviously cancer circumstances that are not this severe. But you know, like you, you not only completely are you know you're not only completely unrecognizable as a person because the drugs that they're giving you are are screwing up your body and the way that you look but um you know you also have to take into consideration like every other component of your life is gone like my career was gone work was gone i had no way of making money i wasn't allowed to work um, you know, doctor's orders, being around people in public, that wasn't a thing that I was allowed to really be, you know. So when COVID hit and the quarantine thing was was going on, I was like, ugh, I got this easy. I've done this before. <laughs> um, you know, so it, the identity thing is really kind of the biggest piece. It just completely goes away. Well, let's talk about how people showed up or or didn't show up for you and what were you surprised kind of kind of describe what that was like you know with the maybe the people in your life so i think i'll start out with uh the one that hurt the most which was someone who i perceived to be one of my best friends he was in my inner circle there were three of us and we just kind of were like thick as thieves and 
you know, we did everything together and and, like the three of us definitely like we're quintessential to each other, traveled in a pack, that kind of thing. And, you know, when I came back from, I was performing when I, when this cancer tumor grew to the size that it was, which was about, you know, a grapefruit under my arm. So that was comfortable. There's pictures of that all over the internet. Um, But this person, I told them that I had cancer and it was bad. And, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen. And, just kind of taking it day by day and they stopped talking to me. And to this day, even 10 years later, they've barely talked to me at all ever since. And that was something that like kind of was shocking. You know, that's not something that you see in cancer movies or, you know, the way that it's portrayed in any kind of media where you have a very surface level understanding of what's going on. You know, like you don't see the piece where like your closest friend ghosts you. You know, so like that on that side of things, the bad, the bad side of things, that was the biggest shocker. But then, you know, the closest best friends that I have now are the people who showed up for me then. And back then they were like peripheral friends, um, you know, that I knew that I liked and I enjoyed spending time with. But the way that they showed up for me during that period of time uh, really was eye opening. And it really set me up for the next you know, here we are decade plus since that period of time happened where I, I know who my friends are. Like, there's no question about it. I know who is showing up for me. I know who I can call text, FaceTime, ask a favor from, you know, like it's, it's indelible. I know who they are. And that's, that is a direct result of that whole period of time. What, what, what advice would you give any cancer surviving patient out there uh, if, if you could uh, tell them one thing or, or just give them some tips or advice Ooh, um hmm. i mean there's so many things <laughs> i think probably um you're not crazy what you're feeling and thinking is real you know one of the reasons i wrote my book is because i met someone who articulated to me that they were having a really hard time after they were told that they were cancer free. Um, They were having a hard time navigating their relationships. They were having a really hard time navigating work and their will to do anything and who they were and all this other stuff. And I, I was listening to them talk and I was like, Oh my God. And granted this conversation happened like three, four years after I was cancer free, like declared cancer free. So this was kind of out of the blue that this happened. And I was like, Oh my God, that's exactly how I felt slash still feel in certain aspects of my life. And it kind of, it's, it's the reason I wrote my book and it is absolutely valid the way that you feel and the way that other people are like annoying you and you don't want to be around them and you've changed. Like that's real. And it's not, you're not crazy and you're not losing it. It's just, it's just how it is. And uh, you know, navigating through that is really a challenge because you're questioning everything um, from, you know, why are your siblings when they talk to you, like just the most grating things in the world to why is your best friend pissing you off? And why do you not like the things that you used to like? And why do you not want to go and do the things that you used to do that made you happy? And you, you just kind of have to like con- constantly ask yourself those questions of like, why this and why that? And what is this really about? And, do I feel this way for real or is this something that I'm making up? You know, one thing that I I <laughs> inherited after 
uh, being a patient for as long as I was, was being an absolute hypochondriac. You know, it, it, it goes away and it gets better for sure. But those first couple months out of the hospital, I mean, every bruise and scratch and, and ache or pain, I was like, Oh my God, it's back. And, you know, like having a complete existential crisis breakdown in my apartment. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of like headspace navigation that you have to do that I would just like to instill, you know, a validation to anyone who may be feeling that, that like that is actually happening and you're not, you're not losing it at all. It's real. Well, another thing that, that you talk about is real is, is sex, drugs, and cancer. Uh, how, how do they correlate with each other? Oh boy, do they. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important conversation to have, you know, you become a cancer patient and all of a sudden people just think of like this bald, bald, bloated, you know, person hooked up to a bunch of machines that are beeping and pumping you full of drugs, but you still are a human and you still have needs and, and wants. And I wanted to feel, I mean, like for lack of a better term, I wanted to feel pretty, you know, and I had, I had this day where I was in radiation and my skin was burning off of my body and things weren't going well. And the radiation team asked me what I had done before all of this happened. I told them I was an actor and I showed them pictures and they were like, that's you. And it just hurt so badly. And so I kind of went on like a sex bender where I just like sought out literally anyone who would give me the time of day just to, like in within a very short period of time just to feel better about myself because again like that identity piece you're gone like you're not recognizable to yourself in a lot of ways um you know i also drank through chemo as like a coping mechanism i suppose which i wouldn't recommend you know like your liver can only take so much <laughs> um and thankfully i had age on my side uh, being 25 at that point, but, you know, like introducing alcohol into the chemo conversation, like I'm sure that made things difficult, you know, and I'm, you know, who knows if that's going to have long-term ramifications on me or not, you know, only time will tell, but, you know, it really is kind of like the, like, how do you cope or how do you feel normal or how do you hold on to like a piece of you that used to exist that doesn't anymore? And for me, I translated those two things into sex and, and alcohol, not so much drugs. I mean, I, I tried pot for the first time during that period of time. I was kind of a Pollyanna about it up until that point. Um, you know, and it was in the, in the form of brownies, which we cut up into tiny pieces. And I realized that if I just took one in the morning and one at night, I could remain comfortably high for months at a time. <laughs> um, you know, so that's how that kind of brings in. And just also the medication that they give you. Like I was had a headache and they gave me Dilaudid, which is like legal heroin. It's like, why? It didn't work. It was terrible. I hated it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I guess that in short, that's how those three components kind of tie into the cancer conversation, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So if you could compare cancer to one experience uh, that, that, that would uh, illustrate or, or compare, what, what would it be? Um, probably death and birth at the same time. Um, because regardless of the outcome you know let's say god willing you live you there's parts of you that have died you know like and and i don't even mean physically i mean like the person that you were prior to that is gone like you're not getting that person back and so there's no point in trying 
you just have to kind of like look at what you have and figure it out and move forward because going backwards is just not, it's not a thing that's going to happen. And so therefore, because that death has occurred, you get to birth yourself into your future and kind of become a version of you that you like better or that is better, you know, or, or that you want to be whether, you know, <laughs> arbitrary, good, better, or, or otherwise, you know, like you get to make the decision of who you're going to be because you have been erased essentially, and you're starting over. Well, if you, uh, do you have any positive takeaways that, that, uh, from your cancer experience? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like, I know this sounds probably dumb or, or like insert adjective here, but like, I'm kind of glad it happened, you know, certainly while it was happening, I didn't. And the short term after the fact, I didn't, but 10 years out and in hindsight, like it has shaped a lot of who I am as a person now. And again, like looking at the person that I was before, not, not great. And so it really knocked me down a few pegs and brought me back down to earth and, you know, gave me an appreciation for life and the people around me and what I was doing. And and I don't know what kind of person I would be if that didn't happen. You know, not that I say, not that I'm saying I wish it did happen. I'm glad it happened. But, you know, taking the best out of a bad situation, you know, again, I know who my friends are. I have my feet on the ground. I have a great family. You know, we're all very close because of that. And I kind of exited there with this very much like, who cares? Just do it. Just go for it. And I have to check myself on that from time to time. That's certainly not an everyday thing, but there's there's definitely that component of like, you planned your funeral? Like, this is easy. Let's go. <laughs> um, You know, and that's, again, that's like a constant reminder that I have to give myself. Like, this is fine. Like, it's fine. Just go do it. It doesn't matter. Um. But, you know, it's it's definitely a positive and and in a weird way, like I I kind of don't want to think about the person that I would have been had it not happened. A lot of what I've achieved personally and otherwise over the last 10 years would not have been possible without it. And so for that, I'm kind of grateful. Tell us about your book and tell us uh, what readers can expect when they read it and where we can get it from. Sure. So the book is called Cancer Musical Theater and Other Chronic Illnesses. Um, it's available on Amazon. It is on Barnes and Noble. It is on Indigo if you're in Canada. It's on Booktopia if you're in Australia. It's it's basically everywhere. It's on like 30 different online retailers and growing. Um, but it is a book that is framed in musical theater. You do not need to be a fan of musical theater to read the book or enjoy it or understand it. It's just an added bonus of color and sparkle if you are a fan um, of Broadway and the like, but it basically walks you through the um, underbelly of being a patient from what the hospital is actively not telling you to the medical industry and how that functions or doesn't function <laughs> in this case. Um, and just a bunch of things that happened to me personally uh, framed within musicals. And that's the book is divided into act one and act two. And in act two, we get to the point where I'm a survivor then and we talk about rebuilding your body and figuring out your brain and how you function within the workplace and how you feel about certain things. And, you know, again, like the sex drugs relationship, you know, all of those things that are, that are kind of bedrocks of social life and, and whatnot are all included in how you just be a person after you're told that you're cancer free. 
And again, you know, I kind of talked about the reasoning for writing the book, but it's also just this misconception that once you're told that you're cancer free, that everything is just like, you know, a glitter explosion of happiness and everyone's just bright and cheery. And that is true. You, you do have that, but you know, there, there's a lot more work to be done after. And I used to say that like being a survivor and surviving cancer is actually harder. Like the work after the fact is harder than when you actually are in the hospital. Um, so I touch a lot about that in the book. Um, again, cancer musical theater and other chronic illnesses on Barnes and Noble and otherwise. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny read. It's a dark comedy in my opinion. Um, I've had people who work in healthcare who have had family and friends who have cancer reach out to me and kind of tell them how it's changed their perspective on the experiences they've had with cancer and their proximity to it. So it's not just for people who are experiencing cancer, but it's for those around them as well and who need like a good laugh and who want to laugh at me and you have my full permission to laugh at me. There are some certain situations in there that you are definitely going to laugh at me for because they're so dumb. Um, But yeah, it's all true. I didn't really embellish a whole lot. I mean, certainly there's like the musical theater magic component, but the scenarios themselves actually did happen. And I think that's the part that people will take away from and be like, you've got to be kidding me. This is real. Like it's, (laughs) I call it a fantasy nonfiction um, for that reason. Well, do you have any current upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about with that singing and acting and stuff like that? Not right now. Um, I just um, am focusing on the book. I'm getting it adapted into a musical screenplay for TV for an episodic. So we're going to be working on the pilot this year and kind of getting that, getting the gears grinding for that. Um, But my focus right now is just the book. Okay, so we can keep up with everything that you're up to. Uh, throw out your contact info. Sure. So um, you can find me on my link tree, which is just linktree slash Edward Miski. Um, and then I'm also on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook at Edward Miski. Hey, we'll close this out with some final thoughts. Maybe anything that I forgot to touch on that you would like to talk about or just any final thoughts or encouragements that you have for the listeners. Well, I think that kind of depends. Are you a fan of musical theater at all? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you then what your favorite musical is, and we can talk about it. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't went. I haven't went to one in a while, so I don't get to get out to them much. But I like, you know, musicals and plays. I need to actually start uh, getting out and and attending them. What was one that you've seen? Uh Shakespeare. Uh, I mean, like a musical. Oh, man, it's been so long. Uh, I haven't uh, had a chance to go since I was a kid, but I also like plays and stuff as well. Well, that's good. It's important to keep the arts alive. Absolutely. So just uh, anything that you, because you're the man, so any final <laughs> thoughts that you have? Um. I mean, I guess I can kind of leave with the sentiment that I leave um, a lot of, I leave a a print of this on a lot of my content where, you know, whether you're going through something or experiencing something as, as terrifying or as scary as cancer, I would love to impress upon as many people as possible that you're in charge, you know, like during the whole 
rigmarole of being a professional hospital attendee, um, I very seldom felt out of control. And that is partially because I had my mom there being my patient advocate. You know, she works in medical, so I was very fortunate to have her there with me. But um, independently of anything medical, like I made it work. Like I wasn't able to work. And so I created a company and I ran an online magazine for five years because of that. And it was the thing that I did to keep me occupied and maybe distracted a little bit from what was going on, but it was very much me calling the shots of that. And it instilled this sense of independence and like badassery and I'm the boss here kind of (laughs) feeling, uh, which in some way kind of probably saved me in the end. Um, because it gave me something to do other than sit around and think about what was happening to me. And that was a piece of control that I needed to have. And the ways in which we are capable of changing our lives are limitless. You just have to be able to make the decision to do it and figure out a strategy on how to do it. And a lot of people, you know, I'm sure would say, well, I don't know where to start. We'll start with Google. Look up people who've had the career or the life that you want to have and, and learn about how they did it and then go get it. Go get it, ladies and gentlemen. Go get it. Absolutely. Yeah, what I'd like to thank you for joining me. And and if you know of anybody that is a cancer survivor or, or struggling, or if you're one yourself, please be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible. Also, be sure to tell a friend, and as Edward said, go get it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Edward. Thank you so much, Curtis. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. Dream.